You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. There's this very real tide, this emerging tide that's happening uh, of consciousness within business uh, and more purpose-driven business. Every now and then I meet someone who is so naturally themselves that they exude coolness and warmth simultaneously without even trying. Dr. Jason Fox found his life's quest through playing video games and becoming curious about how he could enjoy and work so hard at something where he spent so much more time failing than succeeding. It was my pleasure to chat with Jason over a cocktail on Gertrude Street about how we can actually consciously design our work so that great pioneering work gets done and people enjoy doing it. You will note that at one point in our conversation, the background noise of this cocktail bar becomes a bit too much and we find a quieter place to sit. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me for this conversation about the subtle disruption of pioneering work. Well, yeah, so let's start off. Why don't you cool. tell me about why you picked, well, where, where are we actually to start Right. Off? Where well, are we sitting? we are at the, the Everly, which I believe is the number one place for a, for a drink in Melbourne. The reason for this is because the staff are absolutely gorgeous. The, the, the drinks, well... They can essentially ask you, what do you feel like? And you can give them a, a metaphor, something cryptic, or just a vague sense of what you're looking for. And they'll pretty reliably <laughs> mix something that's uh, exactly what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. But what I really like about it is that there's an intimacy in the booths that you have. Um, and there's a classiness to the music. And in terms of... Um, apparently, well, I found out about this term called speakeasy. And I always think, oh... Yes, that's exactly what I love. It's places where it's easy to speak and hear people, uh, because so many places where you go to have a drink, it's so loud. Yeah. Um, apparently, yeah. speakers is more to do with prohibition and you yeah. know. Um, yeah, I was in Chicago <laughs> recently. I learned yeah. that as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, the concept of places that it's where it's easy to speak, you know, easy to actually catch up and hear what your friends are saying, that's a delight. So yeah, that, all those factors is why I love the Everly. Yeah, great. Mm. And why did you pick it for this conversation today? Um, well, you know, uh, a little bit selfishly, it's quite close to where I live. We're just um, we're on Gertrude Street in Collingwood, um, and but yeah, it's you know what 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 day is it today? Uh, it is Tuesday today. Tuesday. Yeah. I was figuring, you know, it's probably not going to be too wild where some places. Although we've got some people behind us, <laughs> obviously, but hopefully you can still hear us. Um, yeah, I thought it'd be quite nice. I mean, the sun's coming through here. It's um, yeah, it's a good place just to relax. Yeah. I've got, an, got what's called an, uh, an archangel in front of me, which is um, something I asked for once. I was trying to get a Hendrix um, gin martini. They didn't have Hendrix at the time, which sounds crazy. <laughs> but they have this beautiful um, cucumber, very, very refreshing cucumber-themed martini, um, which is what I realize right now I've drunk most of because I was thirsty, uh, which was refreshing. <laughs> and you've got a lovely Negroni in front of you, which is Yeah, which delightful. is an awesome block of ice and it's quite mm. a cube mm. they put in there. Yeah, My friends are right. Um, I embrace various forms of snobbery. Um, and ice is one of them, and so and my friends have this too. And we kind of we rate ice on one to ten um, in terms of its clarity, <laughs> like the the how how you can have a nice chunk of ice and have it perfectly clear, and it's a beautiful thing. Mm. Or we can have it with a whole bunch of bubbles in it, just looks like a coming out of a bag. That one's pretty good. It's a seven and a half, eight out, out yeah. of ten. Yeah, yeah. Like a whole rating system there, like with diamonds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Except with water. With water. <laughs> Frozen water. <laughs> yeah. 
It's a big rock. Yeah. Um, so we met a couple of times. We've you've had a couple of events in Melbourne that I've been you've at. Been, yeah. And um, then uh, recently at the Purpose Conference as well. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, yeah, what do you do day to day? You do some speaking, I know that, but what do you what do you actually do? Yeah. So. My business model is probably best described as a thought leadership practice. Um, it's a practice in the sense that uh, if I'm not if I'm not delivering stuff, there's not revenue coming in. So it's a it's a weakness in the sense that um, if something happens to me, you know, revenue can stop. But it's a strength in that the margins are so wonderful. Um, and so essentially, what I do is I help forward-thinking leaders um, use motivation science and, and design to influence behavior and predominantly well actually that's my old position now i've got a book coming out in february it's all around pioneering leadership and specifically where i find myself being really useful is helping people to make progress through doubt and uncertainty through unprecedented work Uh, and how that manifests about a third of what i do is speaking at conferences and events and these are really important times for organizations for businesses because you have all the right people gathered in the room and it's a chance to challenge and disrupt default thinking. Um, default thinking is what happens when we create efficiencies in the way that we do business. And that's useful. Efficiency is wonderful most of the time, except when it comes to strategy. And what happens to many organizations is we become so efficient and we become so busy that we're almost too busy for progress. Mm. And in the journey, and I've seen this happen from businesses that start to scale very quickly, the first thing that dies is curiosity. Um, there are established ways of doing things, new policies that are formed, and uh, before you know it, no one's really thinking outside the box anymore. We're just we're just doing what needs to be done because it's worked for us in the past. Yeah. The second thing that dies is empathy, both internally and with customers and their emerging needs, and this results in, and we're seeing it all the time, big businesses, small businesses, businesses all over the place just becoming irrelevant, and no one seeks to become irrelevant, but we find ourselves there when we become too busy for progress. And so at conferences, playing the role as a speaker, as a science-based, introverted, motivational speaker who has this message around unlocking pioneering strategy and leadership in workplace culture is really useful because it gets people thinking beyond the default established ways of doing things. Uh, the next third of my revenue comes from facilitating strategy and leadership development, which is where um, in a room, say, of 100 people that I speak to, there's a good proportion that are wanting to take this deeper. So I work with them, we run off-sites, we run some programs that run over a year, and sometimes this turns into bigger culture change programs. Um, done some work with McDonald's Australia when they launched their Create Your Taste um, thing, which is a huge cultural implication around um, switching McDonald's culture from valuing fast and speed and efficiency above all else to something that's encompassing the customer experience and empathy and an understanding of what will actually help make people's day you know, beyond just you know delivering food faster. Um, uh, CSIRO, a big client of mine, and they've been weathering a whole heap of change uh, with the Abbott government because um, Tony Abbott didn't seem to believe in science, but now we've got Malcolm <laughs> Turnbull who seems to believe in science, so they've been through a whole bunch of change. I do work with Strategic Innovation with Suncorp and uh, a few other banks, which is all wrapped up in non-disclosure agreements, but that's very exciting. And yeah, part of the cool thing about my work is um, I get exposed to leaders working at the forefront, like 
really pioneering a new territory and seeing the types of things that are just there, like seeing, seeing what's happening at the intersection of emerging trends and how people are working there and really helping them to translate strategic intent into the behaviours that will make it happen. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so, I love what you're, you're talking about there with McDonald's. Like that's fascinating stuff. Yeah. I'm most interested in, you know, a lot of people, uh, when, they're, when they're thinking about work, like the cool thing to do at the moment is probably join a startup mm. right, and get involved yeah. in a startup. And I feel like what you've done is you've taken something that you know was maybe quite obtruse and boring and annoying to people, and you know is associated with big corporates and, and this sterile thing. And you've made it interesting and cool. Like you're you're in yeah. there with the, with the guys that have been doing stuff for hundreds of years the same way, and you're introducing this new yeah. way of thinking. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, I think that, you know, people in, in organizations of business, that there's, there's such a default conventional folklore that exists for most, most topics, whether it's motivation, whether it's leadership, whether it's culture, and a lot of this stuff goes through fairly unquestioned. So, like, we have this, this, um, this almost, uh, like in motivation, motivation is really easy to throw rocks at because, you know, everyone's experienced a you know, motivational speaker or motivational platitudes, like just believe in yourself or just stay true, just follow your passion, all that. Um, And we seem to accept it at face level. And this happens in business quite a lot where there are these these folklore philosophies that people just nod and accept. But when you start to think about it and challenge it, and I find start to go against the conventional grain, um, it gets counterintuitive, um, but it yields so many fascinating results. Like... um, for example, one of the things I really am keen of is, is people to embrace doubt more. Um, people tend to think, you know, oh, I've got, you know, I'm just, I can't, can't keep moving because I'm just so full of self-doubt, whereas self-doubt is, is such, a, such a strengthening um, element to have. It's, it helps you to question your ideas more. It helps you to develop stronger hypotheses. It helps you to uh, explore new alternatives or new possibilities. What's more disturbing is when people have certainty and confidence combined because they've collapsed all possibilities into one single thing and they proceed with conviction so they've become convicts like slaves to that one particular outlook which might get them a certain distance um, but unless we can actually open them up and introduce more doubt it's, the, it's an accelerated pathway to irrelevance. And um, I think that in the leadership landscape, uh, it happens sometimes in startups, but not the savvy ones, and this is changing, but the traditional leadership philosophy is one of a whole heap of alpha macho swagger, um, where we need to shift to something that's more curious and more empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, because I know you came across this stuff from a from a place of teaching about smart goals and that kind, oh, of, yeah, that kind yeah. of area, but how did you come to this conclusion about curiosity and doubt? Like, where was that in your journey? Yeah, yeah. Question. Oh, this is a great question. So, I, I mean, I started when I was finishing my PhD. I was lecturing at different universities in motivation science. There's a lot of literature that supports goal setting, and it does work. In most of the cases, that goal setting works. The trouble is that it works too well. And if you want to collect evidence that says that a goal works, just set a goal and you know follow the formula, and chances are you'll get that goal. 
but I started to see the gaps in where organizations set these big, hairy, audacious goals and they work hard to strive towards a particular target only to get there and find that that's not actually the right target. It's no longer relevant. And all along the way, we've been so focused on that one thing, so narrowed in our activities instead of exploring the tangential pathways that open up along the way that we've missed out on an even bigger opportunity or we missed out the opportunity to be more relevant or deliver more value or have um, to meet to meet more important needs in the market. Um, so that started, starting to see the flaws in specificity, um, starting to get really annoyed at motivational speakers telling high school students that they need to know exactly where they want to be in 10 years time and what job they have and so on when the world is changing so fast. Uh, made me, and, and things like New Year's resolutions, um, which we know categorically don't work and yet we still seem to return to them. Um, made me really question, okay, cool, so we've got this folklore here, what are the alternatives? What would it be like if we, in, if we instead embraced a fuzzier type of goal, so less specific, uh, less certain, and allowed ourselves to be micro-ambitious along the way, allowed ourselves to, to, I guess this marries a lot of our agile philosophies, um, uh, what would that look like? And then, you know, this was at the same time that I started to play video games at the expense of all the smart goals that I had. I, I, um, for three months I played these games despite having really clear goals and all doing all the right things and that got me curious what's going on with game design to influence behavior. This is during uh, your PhD? This is during the PhD. So I was making potions for my World of Warcraft guild uh, instead of working on my thesis. Despite being a motivation expert speaking in schools and, and businesses. Um, and yeah, it got me curious. I wrote the, the Game Changer, which is unpacking all those things. And then what happened is after the Game Changer, that was written at about the same time, well, by the time that was published, the buzzword of gamification had really taken root. And I got a lot of requests from people that were looking to gamify their work. Um, and in most cases, uh, it was people looking for a quick fix. They thought, oh, here's a way that we can you know, gamify things and instead of paying people well, we can just dangle some carrots and have some reward things or have a leaderboard or you know, do points and badges and, and shit like that. And I got really frustrated and I went on a crusade. I was trying to educate them around motivation, strategy and design, game design. Like if you're a bank and people aren't using your product, oh, I think we're doing one more order. I'll have another. I'll have another Archangel, thank you. Yeah, lovely. Thanks, you're still going. Um, yeah, and uh, instead of, you know, so if you've got a bank, uh, if you're a bank and you're selling a particular product and people aren't using it, sure, you can gamify it. But what might be better is having some empathy with the customer. Why aren't they buying this? It might be a trust issue. And if so, making it fun is not necessarily the pathway to more engagement from that particular client. Maybe sharing more case studies, having more transparency, all those things like and, and just it frustrated me how people would take a very narrow thing it's almost um, taking methodology and trying to find a find find a problem for the solution um, which is really what planted the seeds for my new book how to lead a quest a handbook for pioneering executives which is all about getting beyond quick fixes familiar solutions um, default plans and really staying in the tension of exploring what are the possibilities beyond the default and you've got to interrupt me because I ramble like all <laughs> see the default right default thinking default is the option we choose automatically yeah. in the absence of viable alternatives uh, therefore to challenge default thinking we need to come up with viable alternatives um, the definition of quest uh, means to 
um, search, for a, a, uh, search for an alternative that meets cognitive criteria. So in order to find alternative options, we need to go on quests to find these options, and we need to then validate them through experiments and then see what types of options we can then progress with that might unlock new value. Yeah. Um, mm. And then I take it you've gone on that similar journey yourself. Oh, it's well. never ending. Yeah. It's never ending. Um, and you have too. I mean, just I, I, don't, I don't know where this this podcast starts, but like right beforehand, hearing some of the projects that you're working on, this is this is the way of the future. This yeah. is people that are curious, that have empathy for real needs in the market, that are tinkering away at the edge of things, that will find find these new things that otherwise would not have existed or would not have existed in that particular form. And it amazes me sometimes just how comfortable people are just to go ticking the same boxes year after year and perpetuating the same cycles of thinking instead of exploring. Um, yeah. Mm. In the work that you do, are you seeing a little bit of a change in that, or is it? Is it still? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely happening, and you're seeing that because big organisations are dying. Um, that you know, what's really bizarre is big organisations look to startups, and they look to startups, and they're like, "Oh, we need to do more of that," and so they do this half-assed, patchy, superficial attempt to be more like a startup. You know, let's put some beanbags in the office. So let's, you know, it's like your dad trying to be cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then what's worrying is I've worked with some companies that are scaling really rapidly. They then think, shit, you know, we need to start getting some organisation around here. They look to the corporates uh, and try to do what they're doing. And so I had a meeting last week with a. Um, a company that's on the BRW Fast 100 and they were looking at um, they had a brilliant thing going on they are looking at setting up an org chart um, setting up really clear roles, roles and responsibilities clear KPIs incredibly corporate stuff having you know functional teams work together in their own clusters it was just the planting the seeds for the exact model that we don't want that's not working in today's world and so there's this funny thing corporates are looking at startups thinking oh we want to be cool like you and then doing a terrible job startups that are scaling some of them are looking to corporates and um but of course and doing it you know just replicating the things that don't work but then there are some that are continuing to pioneer that are continuing to question and think is there a better way is there a better way that we can be doing this they're the cool ones they're the ones to watch yeah i guess you're in a pretty unique position where you do get a, a very close look at both worlds as well and see how they're cross-pollinating and maybe doing things a little bit badly too. yeah it's yeah. it's mainly in the multinational and large organization space um i find when i work with startups or fast-growing companies like i feel so insecure because i'm um, like, in, it's easy to be the cool one in the multinational and large organization space because there's generally lots of good people working in such a clunky system and everyone knows it's clunky and stuff needs to change. Whereas with startups and fast-growing companies, they're like, yeah, they get it. Like, um, so yeah, I feel, I feel really out of my depth sometimes um, working with those companies, um, yeah. Um, yeah, do you, you're just on that, like, do you see, is that the reason why you choose to work with them? Because you feel more comfortable there? Or do you see that there's greater opportunity for changing the nature of work and how people therefore experience their life through working with those organisations? Um, there's definitely... I, Yeah, that's another good question. It's something we've been thinking about recently since going to the Purpose Conference, which we may have been talking about before, but if not, Purpose, wonderful uh, event all around purpose-driven businesses. Um, 
something worth thinking about. Um, because I, I mean, there are some great companies that I've, I've done a little bit of work with Bellroy, for example. They're a B Corp. They make ultra-thin wallets. They do amazing work. I love what they're doing for the planet. Thank you. Um, my archangel has just arrived in uh, version 2. Um, but then I find that there's almost... We're on the cusp of a changing of the guard, although it's not in terms... It's not that dramatic, but there is this, there's this very real tide, this emerging tide that's happening of consciousness within business uh, and more purpose-driven business. And there are a lot of really, really good people working in large organizations and multinationals that realize there are better ways that we can do things. Um, one of the multinationals I've worked with, um, we're looking at their water usage in Egypt and realizing that we tick all the boxes when it comes to sustainability. You know, we pass all the things, but we know that if we actually think what happens beyond our factory, what happens with the farmers that are growing the crops that we use in this particular thing, um, there's a lot more that we can be doing here and water is incredibly undervalued in Egypt and so on. And so you have these people that have this initiative, now they're not getting paid more for this, it's not their own personal KPIs, uh, in fact it would be easier if they just ignored it and carried on like normal, but they're taking an interest and they have the capacity and potentially the influence in the organisation they're with to affect great change in the way that things are done. What's inspired me most in recent times is hearing, and I need to hear more about this, um, I've got a, a catch up actually happening in January, but uh, in about a month's time, uh, hearing uh, World Wildlife Fund's strategy um, with regards to how they engage with large organizations. Because they're doing work with Coca-Cola, is that right? Hey? Are they doing uh, I've done some work with PepsiCo. Uh, WWF, I think. Oh, sorry, WWF, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're doing, so their, their strategy is to work with, okay, cool. What are the top 200 um, companies that uh, control the, um, the, all the resources and the uh, distribution and where all those decisions are made? If we can influence them, we're going to have this cascade effect of shifting that, the market. And that appeals to me because rather than taking uh, an antagonistic approach, um, as some other organizations do, and they, do also, they also do great work, but for me, I really love this approach of cool, you guys do, you know, you guys use a lot of palm oil or you guys uh, do a lot of this particular thing or there's a large amount of greenhouse gases, but let's work together because, um, you know, it's kind of an urgent challenge, but if we work together and think through this, we can, we can, we can save habitat, we can protect some of the most important biodiversity areas that we have on the planet. We can do great work. We can do really great work. And I think that the companies that work with organizations like World Wildlife Fund and other purpose-driven businesses are going to be more profitable and more successful in the long run because people increasingly are caring. And with the internet that's going on, with the uh, reduced ability for corporates to get away with things, um, it makes business sense um, to, to be doing good work on the planet. But more than that, it just makes human sense. It makes it yeah. makes sense. Like it's just yeah. So so that what's that's what excites me. Um, and of course, it doesn't always start like this. Um, you got to get them some some organisations through the immediate uh, challenges that they have. But getting into a position where some real leadership can happen, which is more than just how do we tick some boxes and meet efficiencies and KPIs and whatnot, but how can we actually make a difference and create a legacy? That's really exciting. Yeah. That is, and like you say, the scale of the impact could be could be quick, and it could be massive. Yeah, as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's um, <laughs> but uh, multinationals are incredibly slow yeah. but uh, it could be it could be and that's a frustrating thing when you've done work with startups and you know how fast things are it's like oh you're just so close just do this but then you have this empathy for the complexity that uh, multinationals have and um, yeah so so it's interesting to bridge those worlds yeah, yeah. Um, so let me talk a little bit about I guess you know, the journey that you've been on as a person as mm. well. So, did you grow up in Melbourne? Are you a Melbourne guy? Or I grew up in, um, in Bunbury, which is a couple of hours south of Perth in Western Australia. Um, I went to university at Murdoch University where I studied environmental science, um, which uh, then took a, I had a minor in eco-philosophy, which is probably where a little bit of these um, philosophies are, uh, emerge from. Um, then studied environmental education, which at the time was uh, somewhat pathetic um, in the sense that it was all about awareness raising, like switch off your lights before you leave the building and um, do your recycling. Um, so then I started to research education for behaviour change, uh, which then led to um, a PhD in um, exploring different behavioural interventions to um, see what can sustain people's motivation to achieve goals. Um, which was funded with a healthy aging grant. So we're working with early retirees who had healthy aging goals. Um, and it was during that time and lecturing with different universities that I started to play video games, curious about how, why they were so effective, started to share that with others and so on. And that's, that's yeah. kind of the pathway. Mm. Yeah. And how did you arrive in Melbourne? Uh, oh, my wife um, was originally from Melbourne. I met her, um, she's a vet, um, her name's Kim. She's the illustrator of my new book. It's very exciting. Um, she was she was on the Murdoch University Wildlife Association stall, which is opposite the Environmental Science Association stall. So we kind of waved, and Valentine's Day was near after that. And it's, I was incredibly lame and but persistent, and it all worked out. And then we, she finished her degree, I finished my PhD, and moved over, and I haven't looked back. Melbourne is so good. I love Melbourne to bits. I've been here for six, seven, eight years. Yeah, yeah, love it, love it. Yeah, yeah, it's, we were talking a little bit about Melbourne and, and other cities around the world probably before um, we started doing this recording, but what what do you see is happening in Melbourne, particularly in you know the work sense and the purpose-driven stuff and the motivational stuff that we've been talking about? What do you see that's perhaps happening in Melbourne that might be a little bit different from other parts of the world? Yeah. I've just got a quick caveat. I've talked about how quiet this place is. Um, it's like this Murphy's thing. It's like the noisiest I've ever heard of. But anyway, we're, we're doing fine. We'll be fine. Um, what, what's different about Melbourne? Um, it's, a, it's a funny thing, Melbourne. I, I, I find, and I know from other people's experience, it takes a good maybe six to nine months to really get into the groove of Melbourne. Um, the analogy is almost like... So some people come to Melbourne and they make the terrible mistake of going to cafes on the main street and they have a bad coffee and they don't really get it and they don't get what the Melbourne's all about. Uh, then stay long enough and it's winter and you've taken, you've gone down an alleyway and you see this barely a sign at all, in fact there's no sign often, and you stumble across this wonderful little nook of this niche thing going on where it's warm and light inside and there are beautiful people to talk with that are incredibly open. 
and you just discover that just beneath the surface, or just around the corner down the alleyway with no sign, there's this whole vibrant undercurrent going on. I feel like that's what Melbourne is like, and this relates to what you were talking about before when you compare it to the likes of Brooklyn, for example. We have just as much cool stuff going on as a place like Brooklyn, um, or other the you know the popular places in the world. We probably just don't make so much of a song and dance about it. It's 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 very Melbourne to to be understated. Like a, there's a new cafe that's opened up near near me. Um, you look for what like I had to look. I had to ask what what is the name of this place because I couldn't see any signage whatsoever. They're doing great work, but like it's just I didn't know what it was, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think there's that's that's a little bit of philosophy that I've seen a lot. It's like let's just get together, let's just do great work, and let the results speak for themselves more so than proclaiming this is who we are and look at our manifesto and look at you know all this stuff and here's our yeah it's it's a bit different like that in Melbourne. Yeah. Audience in as to what's happened. So we've just—it uh, is Christmas time in Melbourne, and uh, it's a very jovial time of year. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. We were the only ones in the bar for a little while. Yeah. yeah it was nice. Yeah, and now nice. we've got this <laughs> this view of the entrance, so everyone that walks in is going to look at us. But uh, we're on a Chesterfield <laughs> lounge, which is divine, and it's slightly quieter. We're actually loitering outside the bathrooms, which, <laughs> which is in, a, in the most classy way possible. So yeah. I kind of feel like I'm. I'm on the red carpet commenting on people as they're walking Yeah, up yeah, that's wearing. right. Yeah. yeah, I did read your book as well and I really enjoyed reading it. I got a lot out of oh, it. Thank you. One of the things that I started to think about was the overlap of habit and games. Mm. And where, you know, sometimes... like, and I was brushing my teeth this morning and thinking about this, you know, to get kids to brush their teeth, perhaps mm. it's about turning it into a bit of a game for them and making it a bit fun. At a certain point of time, the game kind of stops and it becomes a habit. Like, I don't yeah. think about the game so yeah. much and I'm not really trying to progress in yeah. my oral hygiene. It's about yeah. kind of maintaining yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's... Yeah, yeah, you're right. And there's complexities and nuances in that. So, a way to ruin the inherent motivation that one might have towards maintaining dental hygiene is to set a reward to that, which is what the, the default... that that. The simplistic default approach of what many is, it's like, oh, cool, let's try to incentivize and reward this. You know, let's, you know, if you brush your teeth for this many times a week, you'll get this reward and so on. And that's great. And you'll actually get the behavior you're looking for. But as soon as you remove that reward mm -hmm. away, the, the motivation will disappear because it was anchored to an extrin extrinsic motivator. Yeah. What's possibly more powerful is to look at, let's just create some visibility of the progress that's going on here. Like, Cool. Brushing, brushing your teeth is one thing, flossing is another. Let's see how many days on the calendar, and we've got this year-long calendar and we're going to visualize it there. How many, how many days in a row? Like, what's the longest streak that you can get by doing this? Um, and carry on like that. Just the visibility of progress will be incredibly influencing. Yeah. To then introduce now that rewards rather than if-then rewards. So rather than, this is what Dan Pink talks about, rather than contingent extrinsic rewards, if you do this, then you get this. Uh, rather than that, if you just have sporadically, seemingly at random, just say, you know what, you've been doing really great. This is a good streak here. Let's do this. So let's do this. Like as a as a reinforcer of that behaviour, what happens is um, 
people will naturally, you know, if, if the visibility drops away, if the rewards disappear, that behavior, that habit will still persist mm. because it was never about the reward, it was yeah. about visualizing the progress. Yeah. Mm. That, I've got a software development background as well. I can manage mm. the software startup for a while. And mm. I had, I was managing it, but I actually got taught agile methodology by one of the people that were working yeah. in the business with me, a guy called Rob Postel, who was the basically the CTO of the organization. And, you know, he taught me some great lessons about software development, but life lessons as well through mm. agile mm. principles. And I'm really grateful for what he gave to my life. It's so good, yeah. And one of the things he used to talk about was um, information radiators or information refrigerators. Oh, that's cool. Where, so an information refrigerator is like a, a document on a drive somewhere. Like you put something in a refrigerator and you close the door, you don't know what's in there. You have to yeah. open up the door and go and find it. And an information radiator obviously radiates out. So having something on a wall or oh, in a really yeah. visible spot, everyone can see you walk past it, managers can walk past it, leaders, totally. anyone can walk past yeah. it. And that information is radiating out all the time. Yeah, yeah. that's really pertinent. Um, right now, uh, we're, we're hiring someone at the moment. Um, so our team will have extent to four people including myself um, and I'm just realizing how important it is for us to have a shared wall space together because yeah. otherwise we have all the right documents but they hide away in folders which means you can't just they're not just there as a constant visual trigger um, so cool more radiator stuff that's great like yeah because stuff gets rotten in the fridge <laughs> it does it's just, that's right yeah especially in work it just goes off yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah Hey, tell me more. Sorry, I'm no, you're yeah. But yeah, you can you, ask you're your saying answer. that you're you um, you're involved with co-working space. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In Sydney, yeah, yeah. All sorts of motivation design elements go at play there to make an effective co-working space. Um, what's like? What were some of the things that you learnt in that that made for really good co-working environments? Like if because this is, this is a really hot topic for businesses at the moment that yeah. uh, looking at their cubicle warrens that are thinking. Uh, we need to be more innovative um, instead of just installing a ping pong table or whatnot. Like, there are there are better ways to go about this. Um, yeah. What's, what, what do you reckon? Some of the things that were mm. some elements that were quite. I have important. to like. I probably should put a little caveat in there. It was technically a serviced office, or it was before co-working. Oh wow! So, um, right. Okay. But Pioneering. it was it was in Surrey Hills in Sydney, and it was. A beautiful fit out, like the person, my business partner, Boris Tosichu, does in, uh, he does office fit outs, mm -hmm. and he's, he's probably one of the, the best builders in Australia in terms of quality of craftsmanship and eye for design, and this awesome. the service office was like an agency, like it was wow. amazing. The exterior of this building was very ugly, but when you worked inside, it you know, blew your mind. So Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, I know it was in Surrey Hills, yeah. but you know, so Melbourne. Boris yeah. was Croatian, so he kind of, you know, yeah. he brought something yeah. a little bit different to yeah. it. Um, yeah, so... Oh, it, so it wasn't like a, the classic co-working space. You made a shared off, uh, you made a service office space really work for you. Yeah, we did. So we certainly, like for me, it was, it was it was definitely on that path of co-working like mm. it wasn't it wasn't as cheap as co-working and it wasn't all open plan like most co-working yep. spaces are but one of my jobs well, I don't know it just sort of naturally happened like I I came from a really corporate IBM-ish background consulting PwC really? consulting background really yeah I would have no idea there you go and I took on this job like I was yeah. just sick of IT and I wanted yeah, to right. do this yeah and my 
Oh, he was a friend. His wife was a friend of mine from school. So the opportunity yep. there was to manage this business. And I was yeah. just like, wow, this is like nothing I've ever seen before. Mm. I've never had this opportunity before. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to give this a go. And just getting involved with a small business, like understanding that when, when people pay their rent, that means I get paid. All oh, right. So if I don't collect rent, like I don't get a salary. Like yeah. having that, having that realization yeah. was massive for me from mm. going from IBM to not having any idea how that all worked. But mm. then getting to the real grassroots of that business, and then having empathy for these, you know, sixty businesses that then mm. worked mm. in this building, and loving what they were doing, and getting to know them as people, and seeing how passionate about the work they were and, and it was mm. like nothing I've ever experienced in the corporate mm. world so there was that was a big part of it I think just me really caring about what they were doing you know yeah. starting to connect them up a little bit uh, we used to have Friday night drinks every Friday night so that started to build a community mm. we built a mm. rooftop so level so have rituals that yeah yeah that's right yeah. yeah rituals we have you know some great parties there as well and it, it was we mm. have virtual clients too, so people had just used it as a, you know, as a, a virtual office, mm. and they could all come along. So it was this great way of, of people meeting, and because they're all small businesses, they love being part of something bigger than what mm. they were were in their in their small little community. Um, cool. And I think yeah, that were, that was some big parts of it. I mean, just being in that area of Surrey Hills too, it's was such um, a vibrant area. Single origin roasters yeah, around yeah. there. Yeah. 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 That, I used to live opposite that actually. Oh really? So I lived oh, on the fantastic. same street of where I was working too, yeah, right. which is another yeah, important magic. part of yeah. it for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, that was just, I don't know, probably. We talked a little bit about customer experience beforehand, mm -hmm. but I think there was a little bit about just that end-to-end -end customer experience, and Boris certainly embodied that in the fit-out of the yeah, office. Like, he yeah. just took such care in what he did. <coughs> and then I think I added a different element to that with the, you know, putting some a bit more meaning and soul behind the business Yeah, well. yeah, 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 great. It's, mm. that's cool. Sorry, I flipped, <laughs> flipped the... Yeah, that's good, I enjoyed that. <laughs> I love I love thinking about that space because that was probably the most enjoyable work experience I've had. Like I had, yeah, you know, I had complete autonomy to run that business how I wanted to, and I turned it into something that was still going well today. It's awesome because yeah. uh, it, sometimes you can look at these things and they have all the right ingredients, but it's just not working because I ha haven't got someone that's got the empathy that's looking after what the needs are, that's putting the heart and soul into it, yeah. and. Um, at, but at the same token, like the the layout, the fit out, the design of it all was really, really important as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about your um, the new book, How to Lead a Quest. Is that what it's mm, called? Yeah. Mm. Like, is that just for executives, or how does that relate to uh, you know other people? Well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting question. Interesting. Ah, uh, I actually don't like that word. Interesting. <laughs> it's so apathetic. Okay. Uh, you've hit the nail on something that's quite, um, uh, it's an interesting, oh, there I go again. <laughs> Look, that question is uh, a challenging one for me because we've gone with pioneering executives because to give it a, that business angle and it serves the business um, to have uh, executives buying this book, reading it and then booking me to do work with them. Yeah. A lot of the philosophies work for 
uh, people who wouldn't call themselves as an executive. I mean, it's, executive is such a, even though it's a powerful term, it's also got this inherent staleness to it. Um, mm. So it's, it is written with empathy for those within organizations um, that are looking to make a difference, that are looking to leverage the impact that an organized group of people can have. Um, but that's equally applicable if you're um, working in a small team looking to make a difference. The primary premise of it is to get people out of the curse of efficiency, which is uh, this busy delusion of progress that we have where we run around ticking all the right boxes, but we're not actually making any meaningful progress. Um, so it feels like we're making progress, just like playing Candy Crush and leveling up on that feels like we're making progress, but it's not actually meaningful progress. And part of that, part of that process is having, uh, in, in many large organizations, as I was saying before, that curiosity and empathy have died. And it's about how do we, how do we re-foster, open up curiosity, open up empathy, more so that we can start to anticipate what are the emerging needs of our customers and also within the, the people that we work with you know what's not working and rather than just be reactive and address the immediate needs how can we start to build for the future of work how do we start to build for the future in which we you know the future is infinitely complex and ambiguous and uncertain and yet we can equip ourselves by exploring different options monitoring different options and almost developing a quiver of options that we've spent time thinking about and by quiver that's me trying to be cool <laughs> surfers have a quiver of boards this is i read about really? this so know. so a surfer um a good surfer will have uh i have a i have a quiver of skateboards i'm not a good skater but um i have a long board if it's going to be long and flat i have a um like an everyday board and I have like a more tricksy board if I know I'm going to be more going to a more hilly pathway so what it is is it's a quiver because you can pull out the right mm. you know like a quiver of arrows pull out the right arrow for the job um, we can any business can create a quiver of options it's like okay we're watching these trends here and we've thought a lot about this um, if you think about um, uh, you know let's look at some trends that like the quantified self the internet of things um, data inversions, the um, autonomous vehicles, cryptocurrency. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now, right? And rather than just wait and see, you know, just wait and see or wait and copy what other people are doing, if we actually want to lead in this space, we need to be exploring the options and monitoring them and thinking, what are some experiments that we can take that are going to give us strategic advantage that will help us to make a difference as things shift, so if, if things don't, like if Bitcoin, for example, suddenly becomes, um, you know, seems to, uh, you know, avoid the clunky legislation that some countries have and still manage to circumvent all that and become one of the, the dominant alternative currencies on the planet, how can we capitalize on that? Um, likewise, if, you know, if you've got autonomous vehicles going on, and then there's this trend of shared ownership. Um, what does that look like for our business if that has any relation to it? Um, so that, that's the space that we need to get people curious enough to think in, um, which is very different from fast default thinking. Um, yeah. And it's very hard to actually get that stuff happening when everyone's so busy and there's boxes to be ticked and KPIs to be met and targets to be set and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah. The word that kept coming to my head when you were describing that is play. 
you know, mm. play with these, mm. you know, can we play with these emerging, emerging trends and these concepts to just see what totally. happens when we do play with yep. them? Yeah. Play is learning. Play is how we learn. Um, and, you know, for play to manifest, you, for play to manifest, it needs to be safe. And what's happened in a lot of organizations is there is a stigma around failure, which means that you cannot play. Everything needs to be, you need, if you're going to do something, you need to be sure that it's going to work, otherwise yeah. you're going to suffer the stigma of failure. Mm. And this is subtle sometimes. Sometimes there is a stigma and leaders don't even know about it because um, what they're doing is they, they'll celebrate their, their A-team, you know, the, the top salespeople or the top blah, blah, blah. But what this does is it creates this imbalance between, you know, these are the great guys, they get all the attention and the praise, but the subtle thing is, you know, you weren't part of this list. Um, Scott Belsky, the author of Making Ideas Happen, um, has a wonderful thing in which he says that many, the message in many organizations is, we want you to innovate, but don't you dare innovate. <laughs> and, um, and so what's interesting for those that are addressing the stigma and failure, what it looks like in terms of rituals is that your conference, rather than just celebrate, rather than just celebrate the successes, also put the spotlight on some interesting failures and acknowledge those that were curious enough to play that have yielded new insights and learnings for us that may be advantage to us to, in future efforts. Um, play is so important, um, but, it, but it truly happens in, in environments where it's safe to be able to do so. Yeah. Um, I think one of the quotes from your book was, oh, you know, somebody recommended that uh, failure shouldn't be penalized, but apathy should be penalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The opposite of success is not failure, it's apathy. Yeah. Non-doing of things. Yeah. And it's so, like you see apathy masked as prudence and efficiency so often. Like, um, you know, it's the most insidious, subtle threat fo facing businesses. It's just the, the doing like we've always done it before, ticking all the right boxes, hitting all the right targets, is in many ways apathetic. No one's thinking beyond this. No one's challenging these things. Um, in science, there's no such thing as failure. There's only disproven hypotheses. And the only way you can effectively disprove a hypothesis is by collecting evidence, which means you're doing stuff, which means you're playing, you're tinkering, you're experimenting, you're exploring, you're finding new insight and avenues. And that those are the gems that lead to new relevance, that lead to new value. And um, that's what really makes a difference in this world. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to put a kid example in here. I've, I've got a three-year-old yeah, who I've... Probably What's your three-year-old's name? Royce. Royce. Yeah. yeah. And in many ways, my kids have reintroduced me to play. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and the, the fun of it. And it's sometimes it's taken me a little bit of a step because part of me is like, I want them to do it right. Like, there's, right, there's a right way <laughs> yeah. in my mind. Yeah, I that's right. To, yeah. I want them to do it that way. Yeah. But slowly they've educated me that it's not about doing it right. It's about kind of learning about this object that we're dealing with mm. and I took my son to a cafe a little while ago and he just brought he wanted to play with five blocks of Duplo and he brought them along in the car and we went to the cafe and we sat down and he introduced me to this game where we took it in turns we did this for about 45 minutes where we just rearranged the blocks in you know a unique way and then told the other person what object it was 
and oh. like the things we came up with with such a tight constraint of five yeah. blocks. Yeah. We're like things from you know a tree with a nest to a crocodile That's to awesome. like a house with a pool. Like just and the things that he was coming up with, I was like, oh my gosh, it is that thing. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Uh, and you know, touching upon constraints as a mm. uh, you know as a as a, a an element there, like. It's such a wonderful thing to have constraints, to be blessed with dissatisfaction and with constraints because that's where creativity is born. It's like there's this yearning for blue sky thinking, remove all the barriers and limitations, it's rubbish. It's, um, it's when we are cognizant of, okay, what are our constraints right now? And of course, we challenge our assumptions there. Are they really constraints? But some, some literally are. And then think, okay, what can we do with this? And like the Duplo example, there are a lot of things that we can do if we just immerse ourselves in that process and be willing to play. Yeah. Mm. And also the way he kind of pushed the rules too. Like sometimes it wasn't about clicking in all the pieces of Duplo, but oh, sort of like cool. stacking them on top of each other. Yeah. So it's like there is constraints and there's also yeah, these totally. unwritten rules that can be yeah. broken in yeah. the process too. Yeah. I was reading an article about. Um, the CEO of, I think it was Oracle, I might be wrong here, but there's an Oracle software company, multinational um, CEO was telling a team, you know, setting a team a hypothetical, you know, we need to get this cable between here and the, you know, the office, you know, over in the next room. Yeah. But the cable wasn't long enough to do so. And so the team were thinking about... Um, you know, really clever, you know, these, these ways that we can do it. Someone was saying we can't do it, it's not long enough. And someone was looking at how do we procure new cables and so on. And apparently the CEO, this might be one of those mythology things, but apparently the CEO uh, picked up a hammer, hammered a ha hole in the wall and put the cord through the hole and, yeah. um, and it reached the other place where it was needed to be. And it was a metaphor around, like, let's not be let's not be limited by, you know, conventional thinking here. Like if there's any, I can't remember the point that I was making, but it was a cool story anyway. <laughs> yeah, like there's... Cool story, bro. Yeah. There's a perceived boundary of a wall there. But yeah, exactly. It can yeah. be challenged. Let's like your um, son Royce did with like, because I would have automatically thought, okay, cool. There's only a certain number, five Duplo blocks. There's only a certain number of possibilities that are available here. And it might be a large number, but there's only a certain number of ways you can put those blocks. Yeah. But when you start doing, you know, not actually fully inserting them, or, yeah. you know, mm, clever, you just changed the game. <laughs> yeah, that's just right. Just changed the game, boy. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, so just as we start to wrap up, I've got two questions that I usually ask people. Uh, the first one is... Cool shoes, by the way. Yeah, thanks. The guy, actually, Rose. incidentally, the guy that uh, sold me these shoes is a guy called Royce. The oh, only right. other Royce that I've ever met. So, right, there okay, there yeah. you go. Sorry. Uh, you, and for listeners uh, who can't see these shoes, they're lovely brogues. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, so what's... Two questions, yes. Yeah, what's something that you think about disrupting in the future? Something you dream about disrupting in the future? Oh, uh, yeah, right. The instinctual thing is education um, without even thinking about it. Um, but I wonder if there's a, a deeper thing there. Uh, what do I think about disrupting in the future? Me personally. Oh. I mean, education is a no-brainer. Um, it's And it's already, there's some fantastic work happening in Finland uh, around that. And obviously the likes of Sir Ken Robinson and 
um, game designers. There's a wonderful school called Quest to Learn, which is built around game design in the curriculum. Uh, no, that one's in New York, I believe. Um, it's happening slowly, but it's happening. Um, I don't know, the things that really motivate me are things like equality, diversity. Um, I love it when barriers collapse between countries, between people. Um, anything that helps to evenly distribute wealth between people that, you know, that, mm. that generally like a, have a meritocracy approach. I mean, they're all things that I'd like to play with. Um, I guess if I was to get a little bit more ethereal, Motivation is something I've played in the space of disrupting conventional philosophies around leadership. Um, is something that um, I like to play a part in contributing to that. But I'm not the only one, and a lot of people do it a lot better than I do. But there's there's this there's this like there is ridiculous things going on. The the gender inequality, like the pay gap that goes on, is ridiculous. The lack of diversity in leadership and decision making is just ridiculous. Um, so those things would be good to disrupt, um, mm. but it's not me that's disrupting them. There are people better than I am doing that, but I'd love to contribute to that movement. Yeah, cool. Um, and the final question I ask people is, particularly for people that are listening this, that might be on a path to being a subtle disruptor or um, they're already on that, that path. I love that term, subtle disruptor. I love <laughs> it so much. Yeah. Or, or they might be just about, or thinking, of how can they get on that path? What's yeah. what's a small thing that you would suggest people do to help them on that way? Oh yeah, right. Okay, good. Um, so coming back full circle, thought leadership is the is kind of the, the business model that I run with, which was largely inspired by a mate of mine, Matt Church, who um, he runs a thing called Thought Leaders Business School. Um, one of the things I learned from Matt is, well. First thing you can do, if you're listening to this right now, you're already doing it. The monitor, like, be conscious of your information diet and you can curate the type of feed that you have. And the best type of feed, as it is with nutrition, is a nice diverse feed. So you're not having a lot of the same type of food. You're having a wide mix, a range of different colors. You're having your, your proteins, your fibers, all those things, right? It's the same with information. You gather from a wide range of sources, including things like this. Uh, and it's fa fantastic that if you're listening to this right now, you've listened all the way through, you are already that, that type of curious person. Uh, and the same applies to podcasts, to blogs, to books, all those things. The thing that I find really powerful, and when we switch from passive consumption of information, to active uh, or more thought leadership um, approach to it is when we just ask uh, one of two questions. If we hear something and we can say yes and, and this is what I got from Matt Church, or we say yeah but. Now the yeah but's easy, um, easier than yes and. Yeah but is where we hear something and say yeah but that won't work in this context, or yeah but someone else already done that, or yeah but you know there's this over here which is probably better than that. Now that's, that's good because you're thinking critically about the information that's been presented to you. Um, and a lot of people just skim superficially and accept things at face value. So the yeah buts are really powerful. To create a bit of a notebook, a journal, capturing your yeah buts, wonderful. To combine that with yes ands where you start to triangulate things, where you start to think, okay, cool. Um, on this podcast I heard this, and that kind of relates to this other thing here. And if we combine those two, we get this kind of new thing that no one's really thought about just yet, kind of like some of the ideas that you've been working on. Mm. That's awesome because you're talking about 
new, like um, there was a new combinations. There was a the guy who invented the windshield wiper. Um, I again, I'm talking like fourth hand story here, <laughs> but apparently he was sued. Like always looking at the patent for it and so on, and um, like all the individual bits were already painted by other people. But he was the first person to combine those bits. I'm sorry that it was a he. Um, but he was the first person to combine all of those bits in that unique way. Yeah. And that's where, you, if you start to do some yes ands on things, the ideas mm. you're hearing, you journal this stuff, you do yes buts, you, you do yes ands. And then the third step is start to share, start to have some conversations with people, exactly what we're doing now. This is what builds the seeds of your thought leadership, your point of difference, your perspective on the world, which can then translate into some of the projects that you do and the difference that you make. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own Subtle Disruption. Bye for now.